This is episode 60 of the Immunology Podcast, Immunometabolism and Cancer Immunotherapy with Dr. Greg Delgoff. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raub. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast. We have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Greg Delgoff from the University of Pittsburgh on the podcast to talk about his research on the metabolic contributions to T-cell fate and function. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first... Don't forget that IUIS 2023 is coming up. We are looking forward to attending the 18th International Congress of Immunology, which will take place in Cape Town in South Africa uh, between November 27th and December 2nd. Early bird registration rates are available until August 30th, so not that much time. Register at IUIS2023.org. I never know. How are we supposed to say it, Jason? Either one. But either one. What is the American way? I think ORG and org are both used, although for .com, it's always .com, not .com. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so IUIS2023.org. You know, speaking of that, we have to plan, like, I'm staying an extra day. we got to plan what we're doing if you're staying oh, as yeah. well. I booked my tickets, yeah. so. Oh, I have to, I have to finish taking care of that. Yeah, we need to go something somewhere fun. Yeah. Any, if any listeners from Cape Town are... Uh, have any suggestions, you know, just throw them away. Yeah, it's an extra day know. only on my end. So like wine, yes, probably can't make it out to Safari, but like I hear Cape Town is great wine country nearby. So I like that. I like that. I mean, I'm I'm not sure. Maybe I got a couple of days extra, but not a lot. I think I'll leave the Safari for some other time. Yeah, I think but... I go back December 4th. So I have like all of the third to do things. All right. We need to make it memorable. Yeah. So Jason. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. Yes, I, I it was the big one. I am now 40. Yeah, yeah. How does it feel? Well, my joints remind me every day I'm middle-aged, but my approach to life is I'm going to slide into my 40s like a bus without brakes and just keep <laughs> going. Oh, I mean, the 40s, this is like a like a roller coaster. It only goes up, you know, it gets yeah. better. Well, it's, that's what I hear. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. In reverse? <laughs> My body reminds me every day that I don't heal like I used to, which is sad. Oh, well, I wonder. I can only imagine how he feels, you know, here yeah. from my early 30s. Young in Europe with European health care that keeps you nice and well-preserved. I know. It's I know. Great. I know. And all the breaks and all the relaxation we get to, to have, all the vacation days we get. Oh, yeah. In Europe, you apparently know, today's relaxation airing, day. Yeah, apparently we're airing on relaxation day. I, I, I don't know what that means. I don't understand that concept nor that word. Um, no. That word like you do um, something that's not work as your side gig to help you out. Is that relaxation? I guess like just adding more, more uh, tasks to your day because it's just, you, that's what you're, you do. That's what you like to do. I mean, I found that relaxing, I guess. I mean, our listeners could... Uh, chip in and any if anybody knows what relaxation means please bring it on but for now why don't we relax into some uh science what more relaxing thing to do than that's true I, I wish i had papers. a paper on nmr so i could talk about like uh hydrogen relaxation times and then have a talk about spectra but we don't sadly um 
Although I do have a paper with an X-ray crystal structure. So if we're going to use really bad segues going from NMR structure to crystal structures generally, I guess I have a paper we can talk about. But uh, that that has to rank as probably one of the, the worst, worst segues we've had ever. Please, just, you know, just start with a paper. Put it out of the misery. All right. This first paper here, after the world's worst segue, is microbial host isozyme analyses reveal microbial DPP or DP. P, yep, two Ps, four as a potential anti-diabetic target. It came out in Science, August 4th. Its first author is Kai Wang. Um, and the, I think there's multiple first authors here based on the symbols here. So we have Ziwei Zhang, Jing Heng, and Jia Lu are all co-first authors. Last author is Cheng Tao Jiang. This is a bit of immunology. It's more just pure microbiome, but because bugs exist in your gut and they love your immune system, we're covering it. It's also really quite a crazy story. That's super cool. All right, so you've probably heard about all these medications people are using their diabetes medications, but for weight loss lately. So those all act as GLP-1 agonist. They're actually synthetic GLP-1 that you can inject. But there's a whole other set of medications that inhibit something called DPP-4, which is an enzyme that degrades GLP-1s. These are the gliptin drugs. Uh, Citagliptin is one of them used in this paper. But these are all these gliptin drugs. These gliptin drugs are a mainstay of diabetes, but it's been known for a while that some people respond to these drugs and some people don't. Sorry, Jason. So GLP-1 is a hormone? Is a peptide? It is, what it's exactly? a peptide hormone that regulates insulin sensitivity and really glucose tolerance. So more GLP-1 means more glucose tolerance. It also makes you feel fuller, which is why it's used as a weight loss drug now. Um, we go the other drugs that it's this big thing now is um, a second benefit. So they're rel- so the, the, you know, the synthetic peptide is one set, but before that there are these old drugs that blocked an enzyme that degraded your endogenous hormone. So that's what this is about. So they kind of don't describe the assay very well and put it in supplemental figures to bury how they do the first part of it, but they do a screen of microbial peptides that are mimetics for human enzymes. So microbial host isozymes. And they do it against standard drug targets or, 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 or things that we would care about, right? Like, so DPP-4 and other, a bunch of other things like, oh, I, enzymes that do A or B matter for human host disease drug. So we're going to do a screen against that. And so they did a plate-based screen and DPP-4 popped up as one of these big ones that in particular, um, Bacteroides, which is a clade of bacteria, uh, that big group, but specifically than a specific bacteria in that, which I will get to the name of in a second, because it is very hard for me to just straight up pronounce without looking at it. Um, but these bacteroides species produce a isozyme that works like DPP-4. And then they do a bunch of work, and I'm trying to condense it here. They show that at baseline, the microbial enzyme doesn't have that much effect on, on the mouse models, which makes sense because it's staying in the gut. But if you give them a high fat diet, that's known to cause gut leak. And then it gets to the bloodstream and they see that in mice with a bunch of bacteroides, in particular this one species, bacteroides, theta, oh, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce this, theta atomicron. So BT is what we're gonna call it. 
bacteroides T or bacteroides theta, um, which produces a lot of this, that it degrades GLP-1 and leads to, uh, you know, less glucose tolerance, symptom signs that are worse like diabetes, right? So the high fat diet leads the gut leak, lets this enzyme cross and do bad things because it's working like DPP-4 and degrades GLP-1, which is how they found it to begin with. They then do some monoassociation studies. They do germ-free studies. They do antibiotic ablation studies. They do uh, knockouts of the host enzyme and only the bacterial one to, you know, really show that it's the bacterial driving this change. They then they knock out it in the bacteria. They mutate it. They do all the things that show and really establish through a bunch of very tightly well-done work that the bug in a leaky gut so in a high-fat diet, not a regular state, crosses over and will degrade GLP-1 and is responsible for insulin resistance. And, and compare relative insulin resistance and, you know, a baseline host that's the same otherwise, right? The host enzyme not changing. Then they look at people and they get clinical trial data from people who are on this Glyptin drug and break it off into high responders and no responders. And what do they find except that the low responders have more of this bacteroides clade as well as this specific bad bug. And they find more of this enzyme activity in the serum and see that it affects results of the therapy. And then they recapitulate this back in the mouse bottles. They show that, hey, if I have a, a mouse with regular amounts of this enzyme and I give them my glyptin insulin or glucose resistance and sensitivity is improved, but if I throw in a bunch of the microbial one the drug don't work no more because the drug does not bind to the micro the microbial isozyme and then they do crystal structures which is how we got into a really bad segue and show the structure between the two versions because they already have the structure of the regular protein in humans they do one of the drug uh, of of the mouse version they do one with the drug bound to it and then because they're not done they go back and make a molecule that can block the microbial one and not the human isozyme and then modify it to be even more gut local to drop the bioavailability way down. So it's very little orally bioavailable, but acts only in the intestine and then show in the mice that it works to treat the problem. Thus creating a potential therapy with very low bioavailability that blockades the microbial enzyme so it's bound when it translocates and doesn't work. And so then doesn't, that lets people who would be on the glyptin drug regularly have better success with it. And there you go. Then they drop the bike and sail off to the sunset because that was a lot of amazing, crazy work. What a cool story. Man, I mean, everything about it is very interesting. Like starting with the ability for this particular microbial product to modulate uh, our metabolic, our general metabolism in such a specific and um, extensive uh, way. Yeah, the crystal structures between the human and the microbial one are, are close. They're just not identical, right? But they have the same active site. It's some of the other moieties that bind, prevent the drug from blocking, but it's actually an isozyme. Yeah. Man, those microbes, they're screwing uh, with us so... All right. the time. So I'm sure, you know, we'll say it's immunology because a high fat diet and leaky gut is an inflammatory state. But regardless, this was really cool science and I'm here for yeah. it. And it's yeah. affecting like <laughs> your diabetes drugs. 
for sure. It's very interesting. Well, I mean, it is in the topic of today's conversation about metabolism. So I go. think perfectly on the right note. Uh, I also have, you know, a couple of my, my, my papers for today. One of them is, I mean, it is immunology, but it's more about the biochemistry behind immunology. So I'm going to start with that one. Um, and this paper was published in Nature. Nature, just plain nature. Just plain nature. No, sorry. Science. I'm sorry. It's not nature. It's oh. science. Oh, we're going to get We're going to get called out. Uh, so also a really, really interesting story in science. Um, and I'm a little bit reluctant to, to say the title of the paper because it pretty much gives away the whole thing. But human sting is a proton channel. Bum, bum, bum. Um, first authors, uh, Bing, Bing Su, Bing Su Liu and Rebecca Carlson and Ivan Pires and Matteo Gentili. I think they're all first, uh, co-authors, uh, and the, uh, corresponding authors are Daryl Irvine and Nir Hi, Cohen from uh, the Broad Institute and the Koch Institute in, well, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And as I said, a little bit gave up the, the main the main deal, but I think it's, it is a pretty big deal because, you know, Sting is a very important um, enzyme uh, related to our uh, ability to perceive foreign DNA and uh, nucleotides that are not ours. And so, Sting, uh, which is stands for stimulator, stimulator of interferon genes. So it is a cytoplasmic receptor, which is a, a capable of sensing cyclic dinucleotides, uh, which are derived either from bacteria, you know, as a, as a PAMP, or synthesized by a um, synthesis, synthesis called C gas, uh, which makes uh, cyclic GMP AMP, and this activates Sting when it recognizes cytosolic DNA, which can come for, for example, a virus. So very important uh, sensing uh, molecule. And we know for a fact that activation of sting, which results in a conformational change and a translocation of the protein or the, of the uh, sensor from the cytoplasm to the, sorry, from the endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi, um, and then it has, you know, multiple effects, particularly uh, activation of the inflammasome of interference stimulated genes, and uh, also activation of uh, what is known as non-canonical light chain three B, uh, which uh, is part of a autophagy non-canonical autophagy uh, pathway, which is also important if you are a cell that is infected by a virus, you want to get rid of yourself, so that's a way of doing it. And of course, as I mentioned, inflammasome activation as well. So we quite understand. So I, I, there's, I'm not an expert in sting, but you know, we quite understand like how sting uh, mediates activation of, for example, the interferon re regulatory gene activation. Uh, it, inter it, it interacts with some certain uh, adapters and, and certain kinases, just TBK1. We know that, but we, but it's not completely clear how sting activates the inflammasome and how it activates this non-canonical LC3B. So activation, which is through uh, uh, a, a process called lipidation. 
And it's not clear how that we know there's certain uh, ATPase-related enzymes that are, that are associated to this, but it's not clear where how they get the signals to work. And so they, um, the authors kind of want to understand how is thing interfere, how is thing starting up this process. So again, not an expert, but basically what is important is that Sting in the surface of the of Golgi of the Golgi reticulum, it, in, it interacts with uh, uh, with certain uh, enzymes and um, generates this lipidation of LC3B, and then uh, this starts this autophagy act, uh, activation. And one of the things that happens at some point is that there is a transport of proteins, there's an acidification uh, that is important for the lipidation of this protein. And it was never clear how this happens. And so the authors kind of wanted to really look into this closely. And so how, how do you find out where this, this, this proton, how these proteins are being transported across the Golgi membrane? And how do you find this thing is related to it? So what they see is that they Act, so there's a lot of bunch of sting activators, and they have models in which they activate sting, and and they have you know these really cool sensors, these proteins that uh, can sense changes in pH in different, and they can direct them to different organelles. So either you know the different parts of the Golgi or also lysosomes, and using so they by by you know targeting particular proteins associated with these compartments, and what they see is that in fact the the both the trans Golgi and the cis uh, medial Golgi do get um, um, acidified, so they they see um, a reduction in the pH, which suggests that in fact there is a transfer of proteins. And kind of long story short, what they see is that this transport occurs directly through a pore that is contained with it within sting. Um, and this is not the, so straightforward. So it's not, I mean, as a non-structured biologist, I think, well, how did they not know that? But this is not very self-evident. This They started this, they, they kind of arrived at this conclusion after uh, looking at, well, understanding that there is a transport of proteins, that sting is important for it. And then they have this, uh, I think it's cryo-EM structures uh, or crystal structures, I can't remember, in which they show that there's a, um, there is a the structure has a predicted pore inside, which happens only in the case of an activated sting. And they eventually find a particular compound, a sting agonist, uh, called compound 63 uh, 53, that binds to this particular transmembrane domain that sting has that has was kind of. Uh, predicted to to be a, a pore, and they use this protein to to kind of um, to to see if they could um, kind of use uh, by by blocking this pore whether this changed the function of sting. And so what they say is that when they change, so if they treat, um, sorry, I'm a bit confused now because. Because they say that C53 is a is a sting agonist, 
But when they actually treat Sting and they activate Sting using well-known agonists, such as CGAMP or uh, DIABZ, which are also well-known uh, agonists, then they actually see a reduction of Sting, of the, of the pH, pH increase that is observed in the Golgi compartment where Sting is activated. So now I just realized that it's a bit confusing now. Because basically what they find is that using this, what they conclude is that by using this, this uh, uh, molecule also by, you know, doing a lot of very smart experiments, which are a little bit long to discuss, they show that indeed it is Sting itself that is moving these protons across and then that this is activating the rest of the, uh, of the pathway that ends up activating autophagy in uh, sting in sting activated cells so in the cells that are um have uh, were activated with sting agonists so and they do this also even if they put if they do this in, in golgi so they have this in, in, in kind of the endogenous golgi cells in full cells but they also look at they look at it in reconstituting liposomes so they do like little liposomes uh, in vitro like outside of the cells and they put sting on them and then they show that again this pro this protein exchange depends on uh, sting not having this pore obstructed by uh, C53. So, and then if you do this, if you prevent this channel activity of sting, then you reduce the lipidation that is uh, the key kind of downstream event uh, that happens and 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 then continues on on the activation of autophagy. Um, and this is also important for the activation on inflammasome activation. So in, in principle, this seems to be a very crucial function of sting, which apparently was not previously uh, determined. So it must have been a really cool thing to discover because if you're in this field that you didn't know how sting worked in this sense, this must be an exceptionally important uh, piece of information to have. Uh, so, so yeah, so basically sting has many faces. And as part of the uh, immune system of the cell, recognizing foreign DNA and foreign uh, nucleotides, I think it's very important that we know how it works. No, I, I think you're right. I think the fact that it's a hydrogen pore is really interesting and something that I wonder how many more times this will come up where we really don't understand how these proteins work. Right. We keep trying to be good at structural biology, but that seems like a big hole that we didn't know. Pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> Boom, boom, boom. So yeah, I mean, it's very complex. It's a lot of structure, a lot of like hardcore biochemistry. It's a cool paper, but um, I leave it over my head sometimes. But yeah, it's just I think I'm mostly surprised by that. We didn't we know this already? How? But it's really a sting. The sting pathway is not known for so long. When you think about it, I don't know, like not even ten years or ten years, something like that. It's not True. like it's it's been known for such a long time uh, either. That's very chill. I also have to thank you, Brenda, because uh, like you probably do in the most of your life, you did all the hard work and can let someone in come afterwards with the second part because uh, you did all the work explaining what Sting is. And I also have a paper on Sting. Well, you're so welcome. Thank you. Happy birthday. Thank you. So this is the sea gas Sting drives aging related inflammation and neurodegeneration. First author is Mohammed Gulen. Last author is Andrea Ablaser. This one is in nature. Um, so this is a fascinating paper. It, they, I have to say, when I looked at figure one and I'm like, how are they doing this? They have some senescent cell models, like aging cell models, 
but like figure one C is in mice and the timeline of age, it's age months and it starts at 22 months of age. So they just have to keep old mice around in this lab. And I feel bad for whoever has to do that. That is a rough, rough, rough job. Um, that being said, what they look at is that they, they have a inhibitor to uh, the sting pathway called H151. And they basically show that with aging, you have increase in inflammatory cytokines in the brain, uh, type 1, TNF, IL-6, IL-1 beta, pick a flavor of ice cream, it's there. And they take young mice, compare it to old mice, and they compare it to old mice with inhibitor, and they all go down. Like, oh, well, blocking sting seems to help against aging-related inflammation. So they show that, and then they can use inhibitors and look at neurodegenerative staining in the brain and see that, lo and behold, uh, if you get rid of sting, you have, or blockade sting, you have less aging markers in the tissue of the brain as well. And then they really isolate it through some single cell RNA-seq and staining to microglia function. And so they established that it's really these microglia that are changing. They have a change in transcriptional state. They extend it out and they find that the changes in the microglia then affect other systems. They use an inducible sting model. So they create an inducible tamoxifen-induced sting model locally, you know, tissue specific to the brain, drive it, turn it on with tamoxifen, cause artificial aging, cause the signaling, see the damage like you see in old mice. So they isolate it that way. Um, they show that the changes in the microglia lead to bystander cell inflammation, neurotoxicity, and impaired memory capacity. But wait, how is Sting doing this, right? As you mentioned, Sting senses nucleotides, right? So they isolated it to, and, and they noticed on their staining and electron microscopy the mi that the mitochondria of aged mice in these cells looked damaged, bad. Pick an, pick an adjective. Well, damaged mitochondria, at least mitochondrial DNA, and that's what's driving sting. They find higher concentrations of mitochondrial DNA in old mice tissue, which drives sting, which drives inflammation, which leads to neurodegeneration. And I think at the very end, they used a, a drug that stabilizes the mitochondria, if I remember right here, um, and re reversed it. What a twist. It's the mitochondria who did it. Well, we're going to be talking about mitochondria later today, too. In the, so. in the microglia with the DNA. Betrayed by your own mitochondria. Who would have thought? Yep. And what is the compound that they use? Can I, can I, can I have that? Some of that? Yeah, uh, let me hold on. It's here. Mitochondrial DNA. Uh, oh, so it's voltage gated. So they, they didn't block the damage. They used a, a VDAC oligomer. So mm -hmm. research has implicated voltage dependent ion channel VDAC 13 release the mitochondrial DNA. And so they mm -hmm. used VBIT4 inhibitor of the oligomerization. So the mitochondrial DNA can't get out of the mitochondria when they're funky. Did they use it also to accelerate mitochondrial death to like see? No, they more, did it the or? other way. So, so aged ah, mice yeah. leaking mitochondria, they prevented the leak of the mitochondrial DNA out. Separately, okay. they made a mouse that induces sting activation that's inducible to then cause damage. 
So they showed mitochondria leads to sting, stop the mitochondria from leaking DNA, less sting. They also then turned sting on or off and showed the effects in the brain where recapitulated with sting alone. And then it caused all bystander right. damage, all in the microglia, and particularly in the hippocampus. Okay. So sting stings you in the brains. Oh, my God. Brilliant. Brilliant. Look, my jokes are getting older, too. Were you stung by sting? I am. I definitely, right. the hippocampus is failing here, folks. Yeah, that's okay. You know, you're 40 now. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be gentle. I'm senescent. <laughs> oh, my God. You're in the prime of your life, Jason. You're in the prime of your life. Okay. So, last paper today. No, we already rewrote sting biology. Let me, you know, hit you with another, um, what with the word, revolutionary thought. What about antigen agnostic CDACI to toxicity? How do you feel about that? I am mild to moderately intrigued, but could be moderately to severely intrigued with further information. So, um, next paper CD8 T cells maintain killing of MHC1 uh, negative tumor cell through the NKG2D, NKG2D2, uh, NKG2DL axis. Um, yeah, this doesn't sound so exciting, but it's actually quite exciting. I like this paper. First authors, Emily Lerner and Carolina Voronika from the lab of Peter Fecci at uh, Duke University. And again, I, I think it's a really cool story that starts with a kind of very simple experiment. So I think those are the best. They, so, you know, CD8 cells have TCRs, you know, conventional wisdom say. They pick up their antigen on, for example, the we're working here with a cancer setting, tumor cells, uh, CD8 cells, you know, find their target through their TCR and attack uh, cells expressing the target antigen on the right MHC. But we also know that uh, amongst the many things that tumor cells do to try to fend off or the, the immune system is getting rid of their MHC1 expression, often through mutation and loss of expression of beta-2M, which is this um, microglobulin that is important for the assembly of the MHC uh, class 1 molecules. And that conventional wisdom would say, well, then these cells become uh, kind of invisible to the adaptive immune system in the form of CD8 cells. Uh, because if they cannot see them through the TCR, how on earth are they going to find these tumor cells? And basically, this this what this uh, work does is show that there is an alternative way, which is a mechanism that we already knew could happen, but we saw it always associated to NK, to natural killer cells, which is the um, recognition of tumor. So MHC or beta 2M knockout cells, so no non-expressing MHC class one, through uh, ligands of these uh, receptor called NKG2D. So we know that NK cells use this pathway. No, con no uh, controversies here. But as I'm going to show, describe briefly today, the authors of this of this paper show that it's not only NK cells that can benefit from this uh, non 
uh, traditional recognition. So if they work with a model of um, uh, tumors uh, that are this is a CT2A glioma uh, model, and they what they do is they 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 studied started studying the effect of checkpoint inhibition, anti so anti PD1 uh, and 41BB uh, simulation uh, as a type of immunotherapy, and what I see is that. Even in in uh, even if you have tumors that are beta two M knockout, you still have a robust recognition and rejection of the tumor upon checkpoint inhibition. Um, and so that was a little, they already they thought I guess the idea when they started this experiment they thought they would have less. Um, and what they see is that importantly, so they, there's a lot of experiments they are very thorough. But I'm going to kind of highlight the high the, the high level things here. They show that this recognition depends not on NK cells, which would be probably everybody's first thought, but depends on CD8 cells. And when they dig a little bit deeper, they see that actually the CD8 cells don't even need to be tumor specific to mediate this response to checkpoint inhibition. It's just enough so that you have CD8 cells that are activated by someone in the tumor. And they show that often that someone will be macrophages that are presenting, cross-presenting. So you do have, you need to have the antigen somewhere. So those cells have, if you have, for example, these uh, TD2A specific uh, cell, so this, this tumor cells have a TRP2, which is, uh, there's a specific PCR that recognizes. So you still need to have T-cells that there's antigen that they can be activated against, but then these T-cells don't necessarily have to go attack the cell expressing the antigen. Of course, that I guess my first thought was like, well, that's problematic. How do we keep T-cells from just attacking everything? And apparently they don't do this. Uh, the, the effect is quite localized. The T-cells do need to be activated like right there by, for example, a macrophage. Um, and they eventually what they show is that this recognition is mediated by um, ligands of uh, this you know, traditionally uh, molecule was traditionally um, uh, associated to NK function, which is very important for NK function, NKG2D. And they see that actually these tumors, because they overexpress so much of, of, of so much of these of ligands for, for this, such as RAE. Uh, one H60 malt one. These are all ligands for for uh, this NKG2D. This is sufficient for activated cells, activated C8 cells, which are expressing NKG2D, which is known as an activation marker. It's known as was usually as associated as a co-stimulator in CD8 cells. This is sufficient to redirect the the cytotoxic activity of the CD8s onto the tumor in an TCR uh, agnostic manner. And that, even though this is kind of unspecific, most healthy tissue gets spared, spared because um, they don't overexpress ligands for this, for this um, particular uh, receptor. So they do a lot of, like, they really work in mouse models. And they also going to go for the human setting, in which they also, they also, uh, um, Look into like um, uh, human cells, and they see that it can also be applied to uh, assisting in, in vitro of, of human cells. 
Um, and they also look into data associated to human uh, cancers. And they also see that there's always this, there was always a little bit of controversy where the beta 2M is a bad thing, is a good thing, was not clear from the human data. And this might be a reason why it's so murky to, to see the effect of MHC1 a knockout or non-expression because they might be, the, the CD8 cells might be, you know, circumventing the whole thing. So I thought it was really cool. So again, you know, I think it was a I'm even mind blown. Um, and this uh, was published in Nature Cancer, by the way. So really cool work and also very elegant. I love this. I love this. This are this works in which you know you have very specific like the the experiments are all very nice and the story is really well told. So kudos to the authors as always. Yeah, I, I wonder what this means also for autoimmunity, right? If you like just have yeah. some CD8 cells that are hanging out a little activated. Yeah. Well, I mean, what they say, so they do think that they do an experiment with just, I think it was just regular, um, uh, what's the word, uh, fibroblasts. And they don't get attacked because they don't express enough of the ligands. But yeah, uh, I don't know. I think it does give you another thing to think about when you're thinking about immunity. Yeah. Or like at least bystander, bystander killing, you know, bystander, um, effects on bystander cells. Yeah, it makes sense. Interesting. All right. Well, we're going to actually talk more about T-cells here soon with Dr. Greg Delgoff at the University of Pittsburgh. But before we do that, you can decorate your lab with a Nature's Protocols wall chart. It outlines the production of therapeutic CAR T-cells from apheresis collection and T-cell enrichment to gene modification expansion delivery request a free copy of the wall chart at stem cell technologies t-cell therapy resource center by visiting stemcell.com slash t hyphen cell hyphen therapy well hi everyone to today's interview we are joined by dr greg delgoff he's associate professor at the university of pittsburgh and director of the Tumor Microenvironment Center at the UPMC Hillman Cancer Center in Pittsburgh. Uh, and he's going to be talking to us today, I assume, about his research on immunometabolism and how cancer and the immune system interact with each other through uh, metabolic pathways and how that uh, informs or helps us understand why cancer happens and what to do about it. Uh, Dr. Delgoff, thank you so much for joining. I'm a big fan, so very excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be invited and, um, and a pleasure to, um, to share the work that we're doing and, and just kind of to talk science. So we tossed the coin with Jason here and I got first dibs on, on today's conversation. Um, I guess I'd like to start with maybe a little introduction, uh, immunometabolism or understanding how the metabolic uh, properties of, in, in this case, cancer, or maybe other uh, many diseases, influences how the immune system responds to to this particular situation. I think it's, it's fascinating, and it's a it's a field that has really exploded. I would say in the last ten years, it's been a, a really a, a huge increase in 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 our understanding. So maybe would you like to talk to us or give us a little introduction on? Why do we need, why do we care about metabolism? And what do we, when we say metabolism, because I think it's a very wide, a very encompassing word. What do we think about metabolism and why do we care about uh, it in immune cells and maybe T cells uh, in particular? 
Yeah, great. It's uh, I'm happy to do that. And and um it's something I love talking about because you know, in my um you, you know, my past, I've always been interested in, you know, the regulation of immunity. That's always been my number one kind of interest is how is how is the immune system regulated, especially T cells. Um and you know, for, I you know, when I was being trained, it was always about signal 1 and 2, right? You need you need antigen, you need co-stimulation. Later on, we added cytokines as signal 3 and and but the point is, is that especially a T cell, they have to operate in all these different environments, right? That, you know, in the, that nursery of the lymph nodes or, or, but most importantly, they need to be able to infiltrate all the tissues to do their job. And while they get different cytokines and different other cell surface cues, um, they're also in different metabolic environments. And so it makes sense that they would have evolved to sense those metabolites. And that's really how I got started in this field as I studied um, the role of the of a nutrient sensor, mTOR, um, in how T cells make decisions. And that's what I cut my teeth on in graduate school was really understanding that before we could really interrogate metabolism at any kind of cellular level. Um, we were just really saying, you know, if you if you change the nutrient sensing capacity of a T cell, you change how it functions independently of all the other things things of all the other signals. And I think that's something that we're really starting to appreciate now is that metabolism is this kind of primordial means by which cells are regulated. And that, that makes a big difference. And so we have to be thinking, um, I think you brought up a really interesting point at, at, the, at the onset, which is metabolism is everything. It's like life, right? So it's kind of hard to really think about, um, you know, what do we mean when we say immunometabolism? Um, and, and I think, it's multifactorial, right? Is there, are there nutrients in the environment locally that are changed? Is it how the cell intrinsically changes its ability to sense those nutrients? Or is it how the metabolites inside the cell, um, how that, how their, um, catabolism or, or, or just even kind of moving around or, or, or exchange from one type of, uh, of carbon to another, does that alter the way that the cell, um, you know, uh, uh, performs a, a particular function. And we think this is super, super relevant in, 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 in immunity. So we know about the Warburg effect with cancer, right? But I think we're also appreciating it's more simplistic than what's really going on. you talk about how cancer can alter the milieu of the nutrients for that are available for the tumor cells. Now, when I think, or for the immune cells, right. To fight off the cancer. Now, maybe my impression's wrong. When I hear Warburg effect, it's like, oh, glucose is being consumed by the cancer. Well, great. That means everything else is available for the immune cells. Is it also that the immune cells want the same glucose? Or is it actually that much more complicated than that? And then maybe they want something else and they're actually changing the, the profile more than just hungry, hungry hippo for glucose. We all learn. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, so this is this is a great question. It's one, it's something that definitely needs to be, it's dogma that needs to be fixed in in our field, right? So at the beginning, um, it was tumors consume glucose, they make lactate, that's it. That's the issue, right? Um, and so what's interesting is like we know Warburg metabolism occurs. The in, the, the the important thing to remember about Warburg metabolism in any cell type is that it really it doesn't mean um it's not a switch right? It's not that the cell uses its mitochondrion and then it goes Warburg and then it doesn't use its mitochondria and it ferments glucose. Um, I think that's the, that's, that's one of the misconceptions. It's that it also does the glucose to lactate thing, but it's still using its mitochondria. So it's, it's not a switch from one thing to another. It's rather 
the glucose fermentation turns on, but the mitochondria are still doing all their stuff. So uh, when a tumor is, is fermenting glucose to lactate, it's still also consuming all that stuff in the mitochondria. But you bring up another point about the hungry, hungry hippos, right? Um, I think it's always, um, you know, the, it's very comforting to think about it like a land grab, right? The T cells, they're also doing Warburg as well. We've known about that since the early 70s, actually, um, that if you act before we even knew that the, about T cells, really, to speak of, um, we knew that if you, you know, added PHA to PBMCs, um, they started to do Warburg metabolism as well. Um, but that's, but, but, but intriguingly, um, you know, it, at first it was like, oh yeah, glucose is in competition. The T cells come in, they want glucose. The tumors are consuming glucose and, and that's it. There's not enough left for the T cells. What we're learning is that that's a very simplistic view of what's going on. Um, and that's if you actually measure the amount of glucose that's inside of a tumor, so this is called interstitial fluid. This is the juice of the tumor. And you can get the juice of the tumor quite easily by just squeezing it, um, spinning it out. And um, it's the straw colored fluid that kind of comes out and it's kind of the milieu, right? And we've explored, we've done a lot recently with interstitial fluid and, and how that works. Um, but the short answer is the glucose is not that low. It's lower than serum, but it's not like there's none there. But what really is the big issue and and I and I can't stress this enough. We thought we I've even thought about the tumor like a waste, like, like a like a like a desert, right? There's nothing there, right? Um, so the T cells come in and it's like Lawrence of Arabia. There's just soldiers marching in the desert by themselves, and they don't have anything to eat, and that's it. But I think our views on this have really changed, which is that it's not a desert, it's not that there's nothing there, it's that the tumor is not just consuming stuff, it's also producing stuff. It all of the catabolites of all of those essential nutrients, glucose into lactate, tryptophan into kynurenine, um, or any other, fr frankly, any other tryptophan catabolites. Um, the uh, uh, oxygen being converted into reactive oxygen species, all of these kind of byproducts, that's the real nasty stuff. It's those things build up, right? And that those things can be toxic or at least immunomodulatory. And so it's not like a desert, it's kind of like a wasteland that our soldiers are fighting in, so to speak. And I think that's a really, really critical kind of new, not new, but newish kind of look at this cancer immune metabolic interaction in that environment. Yeah, so there's not only like a lack of certain nutrients, there's a lot of metabolites that are interfering with their function. And this brings you also to a lot of uh, some of your also early papers and some of the, the work in your lab has uh, looked into trying to understand the difference between how different subsets of T cells respond different to this wasteland. Uh, and I think particular, there's this idea of the dichotomy between uh, effector T cells and regulatory T cells that seem to have some kind of differential uh, metabolic program, which explains might explain why they find themselves in such large numbers in, in tumor microenvironment often and why how do they survive? And I think as a T-reg uh, enthusiast myself, I, I, I believe that they are because they're already born different. They're already going to develop different from the very beginning. Well, from the thymus. But I think that they already have this program going on that clearly is adapted to different realities. So what do we... What do we understand now about how different T cell subsets are uh, seem to be 
uh, adapted to different conditions? And what are we doing with that information? Yeah, great, great question. And basically the foundation of everything I do in my laboratory, right? Is is I kind of think about how these different subsets think about how do they respond differently to different metabolic environments, right? And so if we kind of break it all down, right? And maybe beyond even effector versus regulatory, but let's say like long-lived T cells, like memory or naive T cells. Let's think about those like really, really hot active cells, like effector T cells. Then let's think about the regulatory cells, right? The ones that are acting kind of always in opposition to the effectors. And then you've got the exhausted cells, right? Which we can talk about a little bit about as well, which are kind of the antithesis of the memory cell. Like they are short-lived and poorly functional, right? Um, and yes, we think about how these cells change their kind of intrinsic biology to, to survive. But the, the, the especially the effector regulatory dichotomy, I think is really interesting because you know, your Treg cells, and I am a law, I love these cells. I think that they are very fascinating because of how stable, how epigenetically stable they are, how metabolically distinct they are, and how potent really they can be um, at suppressing immune responses. And, but the one thing that's, that is really interesting about these cells is that they have to be working when all the other cells are not right. When you're at a resting state, if you will, all those cells are being held in check by Treg cells. Um, like a third beautiful story, um, uh, uh, from a few years ago, not from our lab, but, um, beautiful paper. When you deplete Treg cells, about a third of your, of, of your CD4 T cells immediately spontaneously activate, right? So this is really interesting. These cells are always really working. And so it makes sense that their that their metabolic proclivities may be a little bit different. And so I really took this came came in from this from the cancer angle because the one thing I could never never write uh just kind of break in my mind was that if this environment is so bad, right? How come when I look at a Treg inside of a tumor, it's like 90% of these cells are in S phase, right? They are cranking, right? They're turning over, they're going wild. So clearly they're able to have a profile that allows them to thrive. And that this, this place is not bad for all T cells, just for some types of T cells. And that's what led us to, to, to really undertake trying to figure out what their metabolic profile is, especially in cancer. Not necessarily because, not a priori, we weren't really thinking we're gonna make cancer therapeutics, but really more that cancer is a, great model to study T-Rex because they're so active, they're so powerful, and they're so important in that state. Um, and so we really start, started to go down and understand their metabolism. Um, and basically what we found is they thrive on the catabolites of tumors. The, those, those pieces, the, those, the, the products of tumor cell metabolism were things that T-Rex cells had evolved to be able to eat on their own um, and, and, and actually preferred. When we deny them this, they slow down and they come the and they and they um they kind of become dysfunctional the same way that all the other T cells do. And they 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 stop suppressing and 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 we can we can really leverage this um within that environment. Um I know that was verbose, but that's sometimes what you get from me. So why do you think they evolved that way? Specifically, like they obviously didn't evolve so that we could have more cancer. That seems a little silly. So there has to be some mm -hmm. unhappy accident here leading to Tregs preferring these metabolites, but that was why it did it to begin with. Do we know that? Are we still figuring that out? Like, what's the reason they would want that? 
Cam's yeah, we're still figuring. Yeah, we're yeah, we're still figuring it out. Um, but there's been a number of 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 um, you know, we out uh, we we posit a few things, and so I'll, I'll I'll wax poetic for a second. But we've also been kind of backed up by by a number of other um by a number of other studies. But I I couldn't agree more. We did not we did not evolve T regs to give us to 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 give us cancer, and this and this this access did not exist for this. But you all, so one of the major metabolites we found in the paper, um, in, in, in this, in this first, in this first story was lactate, um, that Tregs can really utilize lactates. Um, they thrive in lactic acid rich conditions. Um, and so we really, you know, oh, this is where we really got started, but then we started thinking, well, where else is lactate rich, right? In the, in the body. And so there's adipose tissue. We know that T-reg cells are very, um, you know, uh, enriched in adipose tissue in, in in damaged muscle. That's where you get a lot of lactates. Um, these are all places that you don't want a lot of immune activity. You don't want scarification of your muscle. You don't want any damage. You don't want any inflammation in your adipose tissue. Um, the in almost all immunologically, you know, classically immunologically privileged sites, these are high areas of lactic acid concentration, including in your brain. Your brain is a huge. Is, is, is very lactate rich. But the other one that we're very much interested in now is of course, is in the guts. Lactate is produced by the commensal microbiome. Um, it is produced in the hypoxic niches of the colon. And so my, you know, you know, gun to my head, I'm guessing it probably evolved first to, um, to, uh, promote tolerance to commensal bugs. Um, and that, that, that metabolic interaction was most likely, um, was most likely uh, exploited by tumors um, uh, uh, to maintain tolerance. That's a very intriguing uh, well, theory or proposal. I like it. I know Jason does. See, we're back to the microbiome, Jason. It's inevitable. <laughs> you can't get away from it now, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, thought about that, but it's, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting. And I guess also, it would make sense that uh, given that often T-Rex will be needed in uh, sites of inflammation, if you have active inflammation, I assume you will probably also find lactate in, in, in this uh, circumstances. Might not have, uh, might have not have been the evolutionary pressure, but that's probably also a, uh, a welcome side effect of, of having these cells surviving in this, in this environment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've actually really explored if you, um, this connection, Right, because one of the, one of a, a a a very good potential source of lactate is the effector T cell that is being suppressed by the Treg. So we've actually really explored now in follow up paper and follow up studies that are not published yet, really understanding if a lac if all there is there's no tumor there's no tissue it's just a conventional T cell and a Treg sitting next to one another. Um, but the Treg can't sense the lactate from the conventional T cell. What happens? And we're learning that there's a component of the Treg cell uh, program of its signature that is derived even from the lactate coming from this, its target, the suppressed T cell. And so it's a lot of stuff we're exploring. So I want to flip this a little. Therapy. I'm a practical person. You know, how can you use this therapeutically to say, you know, let, let, let me let me caveman this. Too much lactate bad because it likes the T regs and then tumors don't die. I'll pick something. Or too much glucose, or whatever. Is there is there actual ways that we can alter our metabolic milieu 
to have a shift on this? Is this something, for instance, that diet can affect, or do you put a lactase as an enzyme in people's serum so it gobbles it all up? Like, I don't know. Like, those are two end, different ends yeah. of the stream here. No, like, um, I, I, these are. This is a great thought, and this is something that you know, you know, we talk, we talk about, we think about all the time. So, um, first, you know, the cancer field, right? Uh, you know, you, you rewind, you know, 25, 30 years. This was the, all the rage. We're going to cure cancer by targeting its metabolism. But all the, and, and there was actually a trial of uh, several trials actually of 2-deoxyglucose. Um, but it was all zero sum. Um, every, nothing ended well. And because it, it worked really well on a xenograft system, right? Tumor by itself on an immunodeficient animal, treat it. Yeah, tumor got smaller. You put it into a person, dose limiting toxicities. And of course, um, you know, you're, you're inhibiting the immune system and also all glycosylation, right? So very, very um, tough to target. But that being said, you know, the, the field of, of, of metabolic diseases, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, um, obesity has produced a, a cornucopia of metabolic modulators um, that many have been thought about for cancer therapeutics. Many have not. Many have been overlooked. Uh, because they're not marketable. Um, but so when I started my group, we didn't have a lot of money. So we picked a bunch of cheap drugs, you know, uh, lots of things that we could use. One of them was metformin. Um, and, uh, you know, metformin has this long history of, of, uh, of, of, of anti-cancer, anti-aging kind of stuff. But it turns out that a lot of the, the effects of metformin on cancer actually depend on the immune system. And so we really started exploring this um, and, and understanding that the metabo this metabolic modulator, um, it's a very strong modulator. Um, it, it's not a very strong drug, but you know, people take grams of it, it's pretty safe. You know? um, but it could actually change the tumor microenvironment in a good way, and mostly by reducing hypoxia and changing the metabolism of the tumor cells, which itself wasn't enough. We proved that with 2DG. You can't just turn down the metabolism of tumor cells, but it's synergized really well with immunotherapy. When you give that immune boost like anti-PD-1 or anti-CTLA-4, then you would see something. And so this actually led us to a couple of clinical trials that we're running here in Pittsburgh, and there's many other trials running across the world combining this, these two drugs together. Um, I think that's a pretty sledgehammery approach. Um, and there are effects of the metformin on the immune system that have been well documented. So I don't think it's, but it is telling us something. And and our and our academic interest in 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 looking at the at the um at the samples from this trial has really produced a lot of new hypotheses and um and, and the clinical results are not um are nothing to sniff at either. Um, but I don't think it ends there with just drugs. I don't think it's like a magic where there's going to be some sort of magic drug that targets some sort of uh, perfect pathway that that hits the tumor and not the immune system. This is really where cellular therapies come in, in my opinion. Um, is it now it is part and parcel of immunotherapy, of, of immuno-oncology to grow T cells ex vivo, engineer them to see cancer cells and put them back in. Right. And, and, you know, in the, in the car T cell space in expanded till in making TCR transgenic cells for therapy. Um, so while we're putting in something for, uh, to, to make them cancer specific, why not put something in as well that also improves their metabolism. And in that way, if we can put in a gen, a genetic program or an epigenetic program into those cells that allows them to maintain or, or enforce a better, more more tumor, um, uh, you know, a 
uh, anti-tumor promoting um, metabolic profile, well, then that would be specific to those T cells, right? And then it wouldn't affect the global environment. Uh, and we wouldn't have to worry about off-target effects. So we did this you know, pretty early on. We used a couple of genes that were involved in mitochondrial uh, health and quality, uh, the generation of new mitochondria, a molecule called PGC1-alpha, which we first looked at in human, or sorry, in mouse TCR transgenic T cells. And we've now uh, translated that into human CAR T cells. But this has now been really uh, part and parcel of a lot of things that we're doing in the laboratory is what are the metabolic programs that we can enforce in a cellular therapy that at least endow those cells with a distinct and and, and improved metabolic profile for anti cancer immunity? Uh, this brings me to maybe another. You mentioned it before, but the other side of the coin when you're talking about the traditional view of cell metabolism, you think of glycolysis on the one hand and the mitochondrial function on the other hand. And I think our understanding of the role of mitochondria has evolved a lot. They're not just, you know, finishing up the job. They are actually making all this uh, bios, um, this uh, biosynthetic uh, intermediaries. They're, you know, being their hub for a lot of, of these metabolic processes. And so when it comes to to do the function of of uh, or, or like the right mitochondria or how does the mito the the fun the form the, the shape the of, of a mitochondria affect this that you describe the, the ability of a t cell to survive what do we know about that yeah that's great great um a, a great question and and honestly we we are still learning a lot um and it's mainly because the tools that we use that have been traditionally used have have been, you know, applied in in cell lines and cancer cells and, and things where, you know, when you're really saying, oh, well, what about exhausted T cells? What about memory T cells? Well, can you do that analysis with the 500 that you get? You know, um, it, it's tough. But that being said, we have learned quite a bit, um, a lot of really great work from um, not just from our group, but from Erica Pierce, from Sukak, you know, um, really lovely sets of work understanding some of this. But the mitochondria produce yeah, the mitochondria are not just burning things for energy, they're producing things as well. And a lot of that chemistry is involved in their in how what their intrinsic proteome is like. Remember, they have their own genome, so they're they're producing their own uh, sets of 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 um of intermediates that are going to do chemistry. And then they import a lot, right, from the nucleus. So there's that kind of what are those genetic programs, transcriptomic programs that make a mitochondrion work? But there's a lot of morphology that's involved in the cellular cues that bring this in. So the kind of lone wolf mitochondria, those are the ones, the small kind of punctate, we call them fizzed mitochondria. They do fission, and so they divide. But the ones that provide, that, that, that are left, they have these kind of loose ultrastructure. And that means that they're doing a lot, of, they don't have a lot of space to do chemistry, right? In mitochondria, the reason why they're all folded up is because it's all that surface area is what they need to do all of this membrane-bound chemistry, right? Um, and so that uh, a more complex mitochondrion, right? And it's usually one that is fused with others and they form these kind of spaghetti-like noodly structures. Um, those have this high degree of surface area. And so what that means is, is that they become engines that are a little bit more fuel efficient, right? It's not so much that they're better at burning carbon, but they can, they can, they can do oxfos they can they can perform the tca cycle and they become efficient and so when they're efficient that also means that they can free up more of their time more of their more of their um more of themselves to be part of that biosynthetic 
step of all of this. And what we're learning now in the, in the lab is just how productive mitochondria are. They produce so much that the cell can use that ask that that's, um, and if you isolate, um, uh, uh, mitochondria from different subsets of T cells. If you get them from the long-lived cells, like memory cells, these these mitochondria are far more in that very complex networked stage and are produce a lot of biosynthetic intermediates. Whereas if you get the ones that are more exhausted, they're all fizzed, they're small, they're malformed, and they're just producing a lot of ROS um, and 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 all of the flavors in between. And so mitochondria are incredibly important for changing the rest of the cell's biology. And we think that is at, in the level of making lipids so that you can form membranes, um, making certain kinds of amino acids that you have to synthesize inside the cell, and probably not most importantly, but, but definitely one thing that we're really interested in now is in altering the heritable epigenome. Is it all? All of those changes to the epigenome are metabolic in nature and are produced primarily within the mitochondria. So mitochondria drugs? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I think that there's a lot of different ways that we can play around with, with modulating mitochondria. Um, there are, uh, I mean, and, and in fact, there's actually a lot of interest in mitochondrial transfusions, right? Actually manufacturing in cell lines or in, in, in patient drive samples, um, healthy mitochondria, right. And then transplanting them into things like therapeutic T cells and make and rendering them more long lived essentially by, and you can spin mitochondria into cells. You can coat them in, 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 uh, in lipos, in, 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 uh, lip, you know, uh, uh, hydrophobic, you know, stuff to get them in. You can tag them with cell penetrating peptides. So there's a lot, there's been a, and that's actually a big interest in the aging field, right. And the anti-aging kind of thing is like, can we, can we, um, uh, tra essentially transfuse people with mitochondria to uh, improve their, um, improve their, uh, you know, aspects of their, of aging, um, which indeed is, is, is also linked to defects in mitochondrial function over time. Um, beautiful data actually, um, from a couple of years ago as a science paper, um, they deleted in a critical mitochondrial transcription factor only in T cells. Okay. And that alone produced the age and aging phenotype. Um, only if your T cells became mitochondrially deficient. So there's actually, um, there's some, there's a lot of interest in understanding, uh, this, but in, in terms of, um, thinking about things in cancer, yeah, it's the real question about mitochondrial drugs is, you know, how do you hit only the mitochondria of certain cells that you want, um, that you want to target. And I think that's something that we need to really keep thinking about. Fascinating. I did not know you could transplant mitochondria, and I'm not surprised the aging guy uh, people are working on it. Sounds that you can spin mitochondria in cells or very intriguing, very intriguing. Mm. I guess you could do that if you're uh, expanding some T cells ex vivo. Uh, you could just give them even a mitochondrial spin. Um, but I get it. I guess you can also use some of the there, I mean, there's a there's a bunch of of of, of known uh, promoters of mitochondrial biogenesis, I guess. But well, yep. Uh, we could continue talking about this metabolism until you know uh, we we age. But I think uh, we become exhausted. We're in science. We're all exhausted. We're all terminally exhausted. I'm pretty sure. But you know, not terminally, just chronically. <laughs> we, we keep at it. We just keep at it. Um, but. 
So we like to ask our guests a different question, like something outside uh, uh, maybe of their of their of their scientific endeavors to uh, to get them to know a little bit better. Uh, and I think I'm going to ask you a really uh, a question that is pretty much a classic in the podcast, which is: If you were not a scientist, what would you be? Yeah, you know, I thought about I, I think about this a lot, right? Um, because actually Peter Medawar, who I love, he's a you know um Nobel laureate, but more most importantly, card-carrying immunologist as well. But um, you know, probably wrote the most advice to people about how to be a scientist. But he was very obsessed with the idea that scientist was a phenotype, not a career, right? Um, and that most scientists could very well do other things. Um, I really thought about this question a little bit. I've thought about it my entire life, but um, but honestly, if I had to, you know. If I had to do something else, I would probably work in a kitchen. I'd probably be like in the culinary space. Um, if you've watched The Bear, it's striking just how much a kitchen operates like a lab. How everybody has their jobs. You're trying to pull everything together at the last minute. You've got your PI <laughs> types. You've got your postdoc types. You've got your technician types. You've got your students. Um, but it's something that I do for fun, especially now because I've been I'm on this side of the desk now. I end up I'm not doing any science anymore um, at the at the bench. Um, so, you know, going home and and cooking um, and and you know, trying to get a meal together all at the same time and getting everything just perfect. My my mise en place all set to go. This is something that is very passionate to me. I'm not awful at it. Um, so I like <laughs> to think that in another life, um, I got a food truck somewhere or, or maybe I'm running a kitchen or something like that, but, um, it's something that I like to do, but it's also something that kind of tickles my, um, you know, need to manipulate and come up with something that is ultimately palatable. Um, and so I think, uh, um, that's probably what I ended up doing. So what's your favorite food network show? Oh man. Good question. I am between two. I have to say, Chopped. I think is one of the was one of the best shows on television. It is. Uh, Jason it, it's been, yeah, it's been on. It's been on forever now. So I don't watch as much as I used to. But it, I just seeing how people work with that. But so, but you need to give us a, a description of the show. Oh yeah, sure. So, um, yeah. So Chopped. Uh, so what it is is. Um, there, yeah, four chefs, up and coming, up up and coming type chefs, and they have a basket. And they open up the basket. And it's got four random ingredients in it. And some of them are whack, like gummy candy and a, you know a pig's head and um and like some vegetable you've never heard of and, and then you know, a brioche bun, right? Like yeah, so. exactly. And then they have to they have got like thirty minutes to make a meal, right? With everything else at the pantry and their disposal that has to feature the ingredients, and then they get judged by three well-known celebrity chefs. And then they decide how it looks. Um, and there's just something about the like impromptu nature of, of, of it's just, it's ex extremely entertaining television. Um, and, and, and so then, then they compete for stuff, you know, and it's the, what's apparently what's happens in culinary school is one of your final exams. And like, there's three rounds, it's eliminations. So there's four chefs, at the beginning final rounds two appetizer, entree, dessert pass through. So you only get last two people for dessert, but I also enjoy it because for many years at uh holiday time or Christmas time at my mother-in-law's house, they would like have some stuff in their fridge and then forget to plan. And then they'd go out and wrap gifts for charity and they'd leave me at the house and say, Jason, we have a chicken breast, some frozen vegetables, a brioche bun, and whatever <laughs> spices are in our cabinet, make Christmas dinner. 
I love it. Which, yeah. which, which I started appreciating more and more after watching like seasons, you know, one through 15 of, of Chop. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So absolutely love the show. And then uh, there's this lighthearted talk show on, on Saturday mornings, the kitchen where they just make food and talk and it's great. Uh, so I love food network. We have, it's where most of our cable, it's the only reason why we have cables to watch food network. So I guess I have to say, uh, working in the kitchen or being a chef or cooking is a very popular choice amongst our guests who get this mm -hmm. question. There's clearly a pattern. I think this is cheating by now. I think it's just, just, it became the obvious answer because there's so, as you mentioned, there's so much in common between the bench and the and the kitchen counter. I guess that uh, I think we're not going to allow our guests to say that. Did you guys? Oh, that's to... not fair. Not to come with another answer on the spot. You're saying, or do I have to? No, you no, know... no. That's fine. You're. Yeah. You know, this is a new policy we're going to start. Uh, right, if you were good. not a scientist or a chef, what would you be? No, but <laughs> I like that. But uh, it's been great talking to you. I, I just love the subject. I was and also was great to, to hear it from you. Uh, your enthusiasm is contagious. And uh, it was, uh, I wish you all the best with continuing this research. Jason, any final comments? No, just, just a pleasure. And I'm now reinvigorated and no longer exhausted. Same for me as well. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate the invitation. And this was a lot of fun. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview roundup papers. You can also reach out to us uh, on Twitter at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have feedback or you would like to suggest guests. See you next time.